I want the world to be a world where people can simply be who they are and know that that is valued and not judged and they can just simply get on with their lives and, and, and live the way they want to. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purpose Deep with Michael Stevens. Michael is a diversity, equity and inclusion expert. He is the creator of the Rainbow Tick Certification. Three decades ago, Michael was diagnosed with HIV. He was given a short time to live. He's very much alive, and you'll hear in this episode how he's making his life count. A really nice guy. We've known each other for quite a long time. Enjoy the episode. Don't forget to share with friends, colleagues, other people you think might be interested. Enjoy. Michael Stevens, a very warm welcome to Pepsi Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. And great to catch up after all these years. Um, And we'll go into how we know each other later, but... You're one of the leading diversity and inclusion practitioners and thought leaders in New Zealand. What is the state of play in New Zealand? Are a lot of businesses, are a lot of companies, are a lot of people doing justice to diversity and inclusion and in what they do? I think that um, the in the in the business world, the case for diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity and inclusion has been made really clearly and really strongly. And I think corporate New Zealand understands that. Um, just the amount of data that shows if you can create a truly inclusive workplace where people have a sense of belonging, it's better for the business. Um, the business is more productive, more profitable, and it's better for the employees. So I think I think that case um, is solid and is understood. Where the work might lie still in is in getting you know enough business to pick it up and, and and work with it seriously. But I think I think the understanding of it is there and strong. Yeah, what would you say to those business leaders who are convinced of the, they may be convinced of the human rights um, reasons for it, but from a business perspective, you're trying to convince them from it, it's good for the business. And I, and I totally understand that we're in a really tight labor market. So, you know, removing barriers for people to turn up and, and kind of be the best they could be and to turn up to work and, and is, is convincing. But what would you say to them as a professional? I would say this is a, an absolutely core part of your work today and that you need to create a workplace environment that is attractive to people. Um, attraction and retention are key issues, especially in the tight employment market we have at the moment. So the last thing you want is to be losing staff or finding people aren't attracted to coming to work with you. So it makes perfect sense to work hard um, and um, continuously at creating a workplace that is inclusive and um, creates a sense of belonging for all staff. And you, you never finish doing this piece of work. It is continuous quality improvement. So it's something you have to revisit. It's something you have to keep an eye on and pay attention to. Um, but the benefits of it are well thought out, um, are, are well understood and have been well researched. The data is solid. It's an absolutely essential thing to do, as well as being the right thing to do in terms of human rights settings. It's the right thing to do if you're an employer and trying to run a profitable business. And I sort of hope, sitting here thinking, are there, you know, young people, maybe millennials, who actually just don't know anything else? And actually, you can turn up and be whoever you want to be. Um, you can bring your full self to work, and you, you know, you don't suffer uh, barriers. Um, I mean, I'm being a bit idealist now, but certainly, um, you and I know a different type of work. We know a different type of employment market, don't we? Where, um, the, the, you know, you couldn't bring your full self to work. Do, 
Do you think things have changed significantly? I think things have changed. I think perhaps they've changed um, in New Zealand more than possibly in some other countries that I can think of. So, yes, I would say most employers in New Zealand today are completely on board with the idea of letting people be who they are um, in the workplace. You know, there is always a balance. How much of yourself do you want to bring to work? Um, How much of yourself is going to support you in the workplace? And you have to, you know, there is always a trade-off. There are some things that you simply won't do at work. But those core basic parts of yourself, like who you love, maybe what your religious background is, what your ethnicity is, those sorts of things, whether you have different levels of ability or access need, employers fully understand now the benefits of letting people be open about these things. And yes, in the past, definitely people were encouraged to just come to work put on a front and pretend to be somebody that fitted into um, an existing system, whereas now the system knows it needs to be more flexible and adaptable to what is coming into it. And I think what's really impressive is actually businesses and, and industries are being held to account. And, you know, the, you, there's a lot of a focus on sort of corporate social responsibility initiatives, but actually through reporting, through legislation, through some of that stuff. But there's one one initiative that I, I wanted to pick up, which you were heavily involved in and helped develop, which is something called the Rainbow Tick, which um, I think you got involved in as far back as 2012. Tell us about that, because I think that's a really important tool, if you like, for uh, inclusion. Yeah, so the Rainbow Tech was my idea, I'm happy to say, and uh, I did that based inside a larger NGO, and it is about ensuring the workplaces are inclusive to people who come from Rainbow or LGBTI plus communities who um, want to be who they are in the workplace. And of course, there should never be pressure on people um, if they don't want to come out, but it's just to send a signal through to staff that, hey, we know that you're part of our our staff, and you're welcome to be yourself while you're in this workplace. The underlying basis for it started with the ideas um, around mental health, actually, because we know that people from rainbow communities are overrepresented in negative mental health indicators across the board. And so the idea was, if we can go and make workplaces friendlier, this will have some net benefit to the overall community burden of mental health. So the the idea of it was never to go into a company and then to turn externally and say, you should buy this company's product. The idea was to go into a company and and help them create a workplace where people from our communities wouldn't feel burdened, wouldn't feel a need to hide who they are, wouldn't feel ashamed of who they are while they were at work. And had you grabbed the idea from overseas and brought it to New Zealand, or was it an idea that you you came across at just sort of a light bulb moment? No, so I I was um, I was engaged in a mental health project about um, about dealing with our communities, and I was doing research, and I came across um, the human rights in the states, and then Stonewall, and then the Australian equivalent, and various European equivalents, and I could see what they were doing, and I could see how that work would benefit um, our overall goal of lifting mental health, lifting well being. And so I took this idea and I said, we could actually package this. On the one hand, you sell it to business as being good for business, but our our driving force was always lifting the well-being of people from our communities, easing that mental health burden by helping workplaces be more um, open and um, accepting of who we are. How hard was it to get over the line? Like, what sort of resistance did you come across? I think we hit it just at the right time. I don't know why. Um, well, part of it was, was um, I think, I guess I enjoyed selling it. So 
but it was 2012, 2013, and there was a growing understanding of diversity and inclusion work in New Zealand, largely focused on gender equity and ethnicity. So I was able to sort of coattail on some of that interest. And it involved um, reaching out to leading HR practitioners around the country. And I actually developed a technique where I am, um, you know, um, John Brown, Lord Brown, who used to run BP, and he spent decades pretending, you know, in the closet. And he now talks about what a terrible mistake that was. He thought he was making a good professional decision by not being out. But in fact, he now says that, in fact, that, you know, he would have been a better CEO if he'd been out from the start. And so I, I sent about 30 copies of his um, autobiography, The Glass Closet, to CEOs up and down the country. Um, and that was how I sort of seeded getting um, getting myself through the door with um, various companies, and it worked. Do they respond to you when you sent them that book? Yes, I, do. I, got, a, I got a lot of good responses. And so we, we launched in Pride 2013, officially. And that night we had... Um, I think we had Sky City, ASB, and a major law firm, Simpson Grierson, all expressed interest at the launch. And um, then it just kept going from there. And a period of your life that you have real fondness, and, and it must have been great to be leading a movement and for seeing your ideas come to life. Yeah, I'm very proud of what I achieved there. And it was me, really, for the first three and a half, four years, just by myself doing the program. So um, as it grew and it grew. Yeah, I, I do feel proud of that uh, work. I know from stories I would tell, I would be told that it made a difference. So, a key part of the Rainbow Tick was that um, we go back every year to reassess, and part of that is qualitative research where you have focus groups, and those focus groups must include people who identify as being part of the Rainbow community. So, and only so, so they're a private LGBTI focus group, and so hearing those people say. Actually, I was cynical about this when the company started it two years ago, but now I can see it's made a difference. That was really positive for me. Yeah. And it does take time. You know, it doesn't just happen because, um, you know, you're in there for six months or a year. It's uh, all of these things are quality improvement programs and they need repetition and re-embedding and time and patience um, to develop and to really uh, take root in the organizational culture. And your passion for this? clearly came from lived experience as a gay man experiencing you know some of the exclusion some of the homophobia in the workplace growing up or growing up well it does come from my background in uh gay rights when i was a much younger gay man i guess um and my fights there uh, my activism and this project sort of grew out of a happy um set of circumstances coming together I certainly have been in workplaces where I, I knew it would be detrimental if I were open about who I was. Now, this was a long time ago. It has been quite a while since I, I've been in that situation. But I know that those workplaces still exist, and that, that imposes a burden on the person. So so for me, yes, it was, it was personal. And I, I had a, a strong sense of um, social justice around this and wanting to make um, the world better through doing this program, better for other people in our communities. And changing tack for a bit and sort of taking you way back to, you're born in Auckland, I assume. Yep. Um, grew up grew up in, in, in uh, Tamaki Makarao and went to King's College like in the 70s to the late 70s. That's right. Tell me about what King's was like back then and, and what was it like being, you know, coming out as being gay during that period or, you know, not, not necessarily standing up to the norm? Uh, look, it was a nightmare. I did not come out while I was at King's. I mean, I'm sure people guessed, people knew. But it was a very homophobic environment to be in. So uh, there is absolutely no way, you know, in my sixth, uh, you know, fifth or sixth form that I would have stood up and said I'm gay. 
even though by then I had um, started uh, meeting men and um, outside, you know, outside my life at school and taking part in various gay activities. But no, the school itself was definitely not somewhere I could have been myself. And I would say that's a key part of the reason I left early. I left after I did my university entrance. I didn't stay for a seventh form year because it was just driving me crazy living with this tension between being who I was supposed to be, the sort of nice eastern suburbs boy, and knowing I was gay, which was so intensely disapproved of at that time. So I wanted to get out. And King's College for Overseas Guests is a, you know, it's a, a private, if you're in England, you'd think of it as a public school, incredibly back then, I imagine, quite buttoned up. The cream of Auckland were sending their kids to that school, and your parents, they had lofty dreams for you and ambitions for you sending you there? Yes, yeah. And I sent my three old brothers went there as well, and my cousins and that sort of thing. So yes, it was a that sort of school. Um, but yeah, I, I, there was a definite tension. I understand this much more now as I've aged, that this this tension of trying to understand why I was gay when I didn't want to be, and I, when I thought it was such a bad thing, um, drove a lot of those early decisions I made in my late teens and early twenties, trying to understand myself and the world around me. So you didn't you didn't want to be gay, and, and you didn't like yourself because of it. I would say yes through my through my early um, to mid teens. I definitely didn't want to be gay, but I knew I couldn't change it. I you know I tried. Trust me, I know conversion therapy doesn't work. So. No, I, I thought it was a terrible thing to be. Then I was very lucky when I was about 17. I met some gay men in their 20s who were um, friends of um, my then sister-in-laws, and they were able to give me a different perspective. And that was incredibly powerful to meet men not much older than me who were happy, who were in relationships, um, who were leading full and normal lives. And that was just something that had not been visit- visible to me at all as a young man. Yeah. I didn't think it was possible. And your family and supportive in the end? My father never really supported um, it. He always thought it was uh, a weakness on my part, to be honest. But the rest of my family, my brothers and my mother and aunts and uncles and cousins, were um, yeah, they've all been fine about it. Yeah. yeah. And so what did you go on? You left school, as you said, at the end of sixth form, didn't complete seventh form. What did you, what did you go on to do during, after that period? I went to university for a year in 1979 and gay liberation was still functioning on campus but it was quite small and again that was another time i got to meet a group of contemporaries um and that was really powerful but i didn't um i didn't i was you know looking back i'd say i was too young to be at university i was 17 or 18 and i you know did need another year or two before i went there to take advantage of it i dropped out after my first year went and lived in melbourne for a year and i took part in gay activism over there i joined um uh, it was a volunteer newspaper called Gay Community News, and I, I worked on that once a month with other volunteers, and I was involved in uh, a gay youth group there. And then I came back to New Zealand. I ended up moving into a um, uh, sort of a, a shared house, a commune of gay men in Hearn Bay, when that was still a very run-down part of town. And that was a really interesting experience. Some of those men were from America, so they brought in whole lot of different ideas um, about living communally and uh, trying to change the world in a very idealistic way. And then AIDS happened um, in that uh, some of our friends from the commune who'd moved to the States and Bruce Burnett, who the New Zealand AIDS Foundation has just renamed itself after, Bruce Burnett was one of the people who'd moved to California from that house. Um, And he was one of the first people to bring um, real news of HIV AIDS back to New Zealand at the time. I left the country in um, 80, 84, and um, 
I was aware of HIV and AIDS, but I wasn't at the front of my mind. And I went, st- I went straight to America. I had a, a month in San Francisco and traveled across the country and then had about six months in New York. And um, yeah, I'm pretty confident that that's when I became HIV positive, but I'll, I'll never know that for sure. Uh-huh. And tr- really traumatic diagnosis because I imagine because at that time it, it it meant a death sentence, right? It, it there was only one option to HIV positive, and then you know you saw all those pe- people around you as not ending well for. What what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so so it's a little bit um, after the states. I ended up living in Turkey for a long time, and it was while I was in Turkey um, that I found out I was HIV positive because uh, a friend of mine, an English guy that I was flatting with, we were working in the same school. He went back to England and he discovered he was positive. And I thought maybe I should get a test. And so I flew to London in um, 1988 in the summer um, for a few weeks and I got a test done. And that's when I discovered I was positive. And yes, I did think um, I was going to die. I thought there was no hope. And I can remember a doctor at the clinic saying, um, how old are you? And I said about 20, I was 27. And she said, you've probably got about two years to live. You should go back to New Zealand and be with the people you love and get ready to die. That's a devastating thing to hear a doctor uh, say to you. Yeah, but that's, that's the message I was given. I didn't take that advice. I went back to Turkey and stayed on there for another four or five years. And I only came back to New Zealand in 1993 when um, a couple of my closest friends here um, had died of AIDS. And that, that was when I thought, okay, maybe now I do need to get back and access um, good medical care. And what going back to that time when you went to Turkey and had that diagnosis in London, like what kind of mental health strategies did you utilize to just to kind of cope with every day, like to be able to sleep, to to kind of live some sort of normal life with this hanging over you? Do you remember back to what kind of things you drew on? I don't think I had strategies. You know, I was I would say the first six months after diagnosis, I was intensely depressed and shut down. I think I probably drank a lot. It took a, a while, and then uh, something shifted in me where I sort of came to a realization of, actually, I'm not sick. Nothing about my health has changed. I'm still able to do everything I could do before I had the diagnosis. So, yes, I'm positive, but nothing has actually you know, changed in me or um, about my health. And that gave me a level of, uh, that gave me something to stand on and sort of think, okay, as long as I am, am well and normal, if you like, um, I can go on doing the things I love. And living there in Istanbul, that was one of the things I loved. And I thought, I want to do this as long as I can mm-hmm. because I don't know when this will end. And were you, have, were you being sort of uh, tested in, in, in terms of your CD4 count and, and how your body was coping? No. Did you know? Did you, no, you, you, would, you would sort of shut it out of your life? No, and well, it would have been, I, I would have been thrown out of the country, I suspect. So, um, <laughs> no, no, it was, it was very, um, being gay was bad enough in Turkey. The idea of AIDS on top of that was just a nightmare. So, no, I didn't tell, yeah. I barely told any friends, and I certainly didn't get any special medical attention for it. Yeah. So, it wasn't until I moved back to New Zealand um, at the end of 93 that uh, I started um, being tied into a medical system, getting regular 
I'm monitoring regular blood checks, that sort of thing. And that was also around the period I started getting sick. And this is where you and I met each other, actually. And I was working at Herne Bay House for a short period of time. Um, I'd done a sociology degree at Auckland Uni. My first job was at the Auckland City Mission. And I joined to join, I joined to a sort of children's service, which never really got off the ground. And they said, this isn't an option, but what would you like to do in the meantime? And I was like, well, Herne Bay House looks really fascinating. And so formed in 1990, a combination between the Auckland City Mission, St. Matthew's in the city, and really a, a kind of residential unit, like a, a house, a, a, what I describe as a, a, lo- a gorgeous loving house for mainly men going through a horrendous time. Yeah. But what, yeah, what were your memories? When, do you remember sort of rolling up to Herne Bay House and, and, and what, what did you expect and what did you find? I guess the first time I encountered it, I went to visit somebody and it, what, I wasn't sick enough to use it at the time. And it was a very intensely depressing place at that stage. I mean, yes, the house was beautiful, but it just seemed quite dark, full of very depressed people, chain smoking. And then there was, then about a year later, mid to early ni- mid 90s, I think, 94, 95 is when I first started using it as somebody with HIV. And I did see it as a hospice. And I think it, it moved from being a hospice to being a respite center over the time that I was actively engaged with it as the virus changed and as our medical treatments to the virus improved. Yeah. It was an incredible level of care and attention um, that was given to us. We were, they had cooks who would, you know, cook individual meals for different people depending on what they like to eat because the goal was to get you um, as, as well as possible and to keep weight on you. Um, the the level of care that we received from the staff was quite incredible. And I have to admit that when I was there, most of the time that I was there, I was extremely angry, extremely depressed, and I, I was not a nice person to be around because, you know, I thought I was dying. And I had that feeling that, you know, I'm not even, you know, I'm not even 40 and I'm going to die. I was about 33, 34, and that feeling of my body betraying me. I couldn't walk. At one stage, I was bed-bound. I, um, you know, I could take two or three steps, and that was a, it was a real triumph for me when I could actually walk from the bedroom all the way down the hallway to the kitchen. So to be that weak, to be, I, was, I was around 50 kgs at one point. So I was really bitter and angry while I was there for a, a time. And then um, actually the, uh, the supervisor took me aside one time and said i understand how bad this is for you but unless your attitude changes we're going to have to ask you to leave and we've never done that with anyone else before <laughs> so um that made me stop and think and reevaluate how i how i was um, doing things i decided i didn't want to die bitter and unhappy so i needed to do something to make sure i didn't yeah see i don't i mean having you know been with you for probably off and on uh, over a period of six months, I just remember you being really forthright uh, about your opinions. So, and I don't, I don't remember you being um, angry. But you know, in terms of say combination therapies had kicked in. There were certainly drugs that were kicking in, and they were turning the tide for for people. And, it, and I remember it was a period of time not for everyone though. So when I was there, I I, I nursed a guy to his death. And that must have been really hard being in a house because, like you say, it was a ho- it was sort of a hospice and a day centre. So it was sort of um, it was both things, and it must have been a hard place to turn up to sometimes because you've got that extreme of people who are, are nearing end of life. You're angry, 
you 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 know you're not happy with your situation but did so your body started to fight back basically help with by the combination therapy oh yeah i'm a huge fan of western medicine i was lucky enough to hold on um until uh the uh the combination therapy came through in new zealand and i was one of the first people put onto it as my understanding and it worked and it slowly made an absolutely massive difference physically and so on in in, in my well-being so i moved from the brink of death and i you know i'd spent a lot of time preparing for death and i have to say that has been the most fulfilling project in my life apart from the relationship i have with the man i love now but um that intense period of of preparing to have a good death it was a um it was a luxury that not many people get but then my life changed because I started to, as I say, move away from dying and started to um, have to f- figure out how I was going to deal with normal life again. Um, and that was a challenge in itself as I started to get stronger and think, now what do I do? Yeah. And did that, over a few months, started to realize actually you might not die? And is that what the doctors were telling you? Yeah, I'd say it was more like a few years. And I think there was, uh, for a long period of time, I had, and a lot of other of my contemporaries, we had a really strong sense of doubt about how long um, these drugs would be effective for, that maybe it was just a stopgap to give us a few extra years' life, and then our bodies would get resistant, or the virus would get resistant to the drugs. And Yeah, so I, I'm, I turned 60 last year, which I never thought I would do, not complaining. But yes, Western medicine saved my life, definitely, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. So you come out of this period, life, you're looking at life as going to be a, a long life, and you, you sort of hinted there that actually that was difficult in, its, in itself like it, was there a huge pressure to suddenly make your life count yes i had a sense that i needed to make my life count that I, I i had as i said before i had spent an intense period of time focusing on how do i die well i don't want to die badly how do i make sure i have a good death and then suddenly that's taken away from me as a project so then it was like well how do i how do i give myself a good life what do i do next to do that and that was a challenge in itself and I went back to university as a starting point um, just to finish off um, the degree I dropped out of all those years ago. And I did that. And That was a sociology degree, was it? That's right. Yep. Yep. And then I went on to do a master's um, and I was tutoring and then I was lecturing and uh, I was employed by the university for a year as a lecturer while I was, and I was doing a PhD, which I dropped out of in the end. And, uh, but yes, that, that helped me. That gave me grounding and a whole lot of things that I needed, I think, to um, put my life back together. Because one of the important things to talk about is with HIV is it's a virus, right? But it came with this huge amounts of stigma, right? And people yeah. were treated so appallingly. Yes. Um, and, you know, to the point where, you know, people were hurried out of rooms. Like, t- tell us about what your experience with, with that was and then how that fired you up. I'm lucky, I think, and possibly unusual for someone in my generation in that I didn't encounter that much direct stigma. I have friends who had stories of, you know, being given disposable plates and and cutlery when they went to a family meal so they didn't use the family china and and, and knives and forks and that sort of thing. That never happened to me. I I know people who were told, don't tell anybody about it. And again, that didn't really happen to me. And I, I... you know, the way I looked, um, it was pretty hard to hide. So there was no point in trying to pretend about it, really. It's like, this is who I am. Yeah, because there was, there was visible, like, you know, 
especially if you were if it's particularly sick, but there were visible signs that someone had HIV in terms of skin conditions, yes. loss of weight, and you know you talked about being an activist because you, are you an activist at heart and you you can get quite fiery on particular issues and and you want to fight for the 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 sort of down the small guy yeah i think that's true so i became involved in aids activism i um joined body positive i was on the board of that that's a group um run by positive people for positive people and then later i joined the board of the new zealand aids foundation which is just renamed as the burnett foundation and I became chair of the AIDS Foundation. I was chair until for four years, I think, from 1999 to 2003 or 2004. And I, um, I have, on numerous occasions, written in various newspapers or been interviewed for TV shows or radio shows to talk about HIV and AIDS over the years. Um, yeah, so I've always been very public and open about the fact that I live with the virus. I think it's important that people see um, who we are and understand it. And, and these other... This other people who have gone the other direction in terms of they've they've sort of just living quietly with it, ignored it completely, but you chose that other path. And does it fit well with your personality? Do you do you not mind taking on, you know, and difficult issues and challenging people? Because as I said, when I first met you, I I just thought of you as quite forthright and in your face. Yeah, well, yes, um, I guess I have been that way all my life, and I um somebody has to stand up and say things, so. Why not me? Um, and I can't complain if I won't. So I think it's important to um, to speak one's truth and to and to listen as well to other people's and to be willing to um, listen and see if you've got things right or wrong, if you need to come at them from a different angle. But yes, I'm, I I think it is important to um, stand up and talk about things that matter. As HIV and AIDS changes and and you know evolves, and, and we just touched on there where you know the New Zealand AIDS Foundation has re- rebranded and is you know very much looking like a different type of virus but how important is it that we look back shine light remember all those people that we lost because you know you would have lost a lot of um, friends and from your community is that that stuff's really important it is really important and um, I think explaining to younger gay men or bi men or younger men who have sex with men, what it was like is also really important because it's it is such a different world today. You can take prep pre-exposed prophylaxis, so you can take a pill and go out and have unprotected sex and know you won't get infected. If you've had unprotected sex, you can have a morning after pill, um, and if you do get infected with HIV, a medication will control it. So last year was the first year in our history since 1984 that nobody in New Zealand died of AIDS. So that's just amazing to me. That's just such a different world. Mm. And I think it was, I mean, you were there, you know, it was such an intense time. The community was so focused on supporting ourselves and looking after one another and pushing for change. It was, I, I would say it was equivalent to our World War One, really, in the terms of the numbers of, you know, beautiful young men that we lost. And a lot of that's been forgotten. And I, I really think those memories need to be kept alive and deserve to be kept alive. And uh, their memories need to be honoured still. Yeah, because these, these are men cut down in their absolute prime, right? Like, they're physically fit. They've got the whole lives in front of them. And, you know, suddenly families are losing sons, sons you know. like And, uh, yeah, I, I applaud you on the work that you've done subsequently. And I think, you know, looking at your career post doing that degree you've you've clearly tried to use the resources you 
tra- clearly focused your your sort of activism, um, your lived experience, you know, of trying to ensure that the future's good for for young gay men specifically, but just for for all people who maybe feel excluded, maybe are not, you know, not included. Um, yeah. Is that something you focus, do you reflect on quite often? Do I reflect on it quite often? I don't know, but I think you're accurate in saying that's a motivator for me. I don't want people to have to go through, as I did as a very young gay man, that sense of there's something terribly wrong with me that I have to hide and have to try and change. I don't want people who have got different um physical conditions, also feeling ashamed of who they are, um, or feeling like there's something wrong with them. I don't you know, I want I want the world to be a world where people can simply be who they are and know that that is valued and not judged and they can just simply get on with their lives and, and, and live the way they want to. Wonderful. And you talked about briefly you're in a a very loving relationship with the uh, Man of your dreams, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yes, I am. I am, very luckily. I didn't think it would happen. I'm very fortunate that I, five years ago, met a wonderful man by um, chance. And um, yeah, we're, we're engaged and we're going to get married later this year. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations for that. Thank you. And, and in terms of a few quick fire questions before we wrap up, okay. if you had a chance to have lunch with somebody dead or alive, who, who would that be? <laughs> oh. Um, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, so many people. Um, at the moment, alive, I think I'd say John Brown. I'd love to sit down and have a chat with him. I was thinking that the other day. Because you found you, his stories resonated so much? Yes. And beside your bed, there's a book. What is it? Right now, I am rereading an old favourite, um, an Ian M. Banks culture novel called Accession. I love his science fiction work. Um, I read a lot, though. I re- mainly read history and biographies these days. I really read fiction. I've got a few few that I like to go back to. And where do you draw your inspiration? What are who, like mentors, either the ones you interact with or the ones that you just listen to or draw on? Like where do you get your inspiration from? I've been lucky in that I've met some really wonderful people over my life who have pushed me in different directions, whether they knew it or not. I've just been incredibly fortunate that way. I'd say one of the most important ones in my sort of post-AIDS world um, has been she's now the professor of indigenous studies at Auckland University, Professor Tracy McIntosh, an amazing woman. But yeah, uh, I've met um, I've met some really wonderful people and some brilliant people in the corporate world too. People often think people in, in the business world are boring, dull drones, but I've met people who just blow my socks off with the way they think and their imaginations and what they're trying to do, um, working away. So yeah, I've met, I've met a lot of great people. I've been really lucky that way. And would you, would it be true that you you think that there's a lot of power in the business world to change some of society's issues. Like, and you seem to be contributing to that. Is that something you feel quite hopeful for the future? I think there's immense power in, in businesses being able to change things to have an effect. They can't change everything, but if, if people know when they go into a workplace, um, this is what's expected in terms of how we treat each other. Some of that's bound to slide back into their private lives and personal lives, or just to make them even question perhaps some beliefs and attitudes I've held in the past. So I think having businesses where they say, um, you know, hey, it's absolutely fine to be a woman in a relationship with another woman, or um, we're really happy having people work with us who are deaf or blind or have mobility issues or mental health conditions, and they don't need to hide any of this stuff. 
those those things are really important uh, in in creating visibility and other people's interactions and seeing and understanding. Hey, these are just people, and maybe I need to question my assumptions and the, the other ways I've had of thinking things. So if this is what my workplace is like, perhaps this is true elsewhere in the world too. Wonderful. Michael Stevens, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Purposely. Mark, thank you. It's been a great opportunity. I've really enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 